Amen. That was incredible. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning. If, uh, if you're here for the first time or you haven't met me, my name is Joe, and I get to be one of our, or one of our pastors here at the chapel, and I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. Um, but this is sort of a newer role for me. I did student ministry for 10 years, which is why I have gray in my beard. But um, we're really excited because we're relaunching our high school ministry, and it's going to be incredible. So to give you a little bit more information, would you please do me a favor, turn your attention to the screens. Hi, you guys. We're super excited. We know that a lot of our high schoolers have mentioned that they are ready to start meeting on a weekly basis at their campus, and the chapel is ready to make it happen. That's right. Each campus, every week, 6 o'clock to 7.30, we're going to have a lot of fun activity, some food, a Bible study, and just a lot of fellowship and fun with each other. So come on out, bring your friends, bring yourself. September 11th is our launch. We are super excited. We want to see you there. Get ready. Okay, tell us when to go. Like, give us a countdown or something. I don't know. I'm so nervous. <laughs> we're gonna have some food. We're gonna have some Bible study. We're gonna have some. I can't do it. <laughs> Fun activities. Food. Jesus. Fellowship. Party in the house with That's Jesus. What we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I had to get out. <laughs> And I love, I love the fun and energy that high school ministry has and our middle school ministry has. And so uh, Jen Rawson recently came on staff as our family ministries director. She's doing an incredible job. She's very forward thinking about ministry and uh, what's going to happen in high school ministry is going to be incredible. So if you are a high schooler, you know a high schooler, you have a high schooler. This is from Jen. She says, we're so excited to bring back high school ministry to each campus every Sunday. We have a great team of leaders committed to helping our students move one step closer to God and each other through Christ. It all begins with a kickoff on September 11th at 6 p.m., so right here at our Norwalk campus. Um, hope to see you there. Uh, but today, we are going to be talking about work. As we, as we continue in our series on Acts, we're going to be in Acts 18 today, um, but I want to tell you a little bit of a story. It's story time. So my first job, I started working when I was 12 years old, because uh, apparently labor laws, child labor laws didn't exist in 1992, but uh, I sold hot dogs and soda out in front of the store that my dad was a manager at, I did that for a couple years, and then I got my first real job, I was a dishwasher at Ponderosa, raise your hand if you remember Ponderosa, yeah, and if you ate at the Ponderosa in Fremont in the mid-90s, I washed your dishes and you're gross, all right? Don't stick the cheese on the bottom of the, that's gross. I get to, no, it was a great job. Like, it's a terrible job, but all my friends worked there, so we had a blast. It was awesome, right? Uh, the quickest job I ever had was at a plastics factory. I worked there for two and a half days, because the third day I went on lunch, and I was just like, I'm not going back. <laughs> it's not how you quit a job. I was just like, I am not doing this anymore. This was before I was a Christian, okay? So don't judge me. I didn't know any better. But anyway, don't do that, all right? Well, why is work important? And why are we talking about it at church? Well, I want to speak to two groups of people. First, I want to speak to the non-Christians. So if you're here and you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing, um, this church thing, whatever. You got a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, um, some challenges. That's great. We're so glad you're here. This is a place for you to come, and we'll walk alongside you as you figure that stuff out, right? So you may not, you might be like, oh, I I'm not on board with all this yet. Totally cool. But maybe you work with some Christians, right? Yeah, and they make it known that they're Christians, right? And you are like, man, 
I do not want to be involved with what you're involved in, right? Because maybe they're rude, maybe they're slackers, maybe they blame stuff on you, they cut corners or whatever. And I want to tell you, with whatever authority I have, that that is not a representation of who Jesus is. And so if you work with a Christian and they are pulling that stuff, I give you the authority and the right to call them out on it, all right? And if they have a problem with you, give them my email and I will have a chat with them, okay? Because uh, it's, it's not okay. It's not, that's not a representation of who Jesus is, right? Now, if you're a Christian, uh, why is work important to you? Well, you know, I talked about our sphere of influence a couple weeks ago. The reality is you get to rub shoulders. You're around a lot of people at your workplace a lot, and you have an opportunity to be a reflection of who Jesus is. And we're at work a lot, right? Here's the, here's the numbers. On average, a person works 90,000 hours, all right? You can probably cut that down to 80 if you take your phone into the bathroom on your break, all right? Cut that down a bit. That translates to 5 million 400,000 minutes, all right? That's 324 billion seconds and 11,258 hour days. And like all the high school students are just like, oh, are you serious? Yeah, it's a lot of work, right? And maybe you're retired though. And I've seen this, some people retire, a lot of people retire and then end up coming back to work at least part-time in some capacity because work is good right? Um, it, it, well, it could either be good, it could be a blessing, or it could be a curse, depending on how you look at it. But it is important, all right? And all of those numbers I gave you, if you are a stay-at-home parent, you can go ahead and just triple that, because you're on call all the time. Stay-at-home parenting is the hardest job that there is, all right? So the reality is you're going to spend about a third of your lives sleep, sleeping. That too. Uh, <laughs> a third of your lives sleeping, a third of your lives working, and a third of your lives doing whatever else. Uh, now, so when we think about our current jobs, some of you might be excited because you get to go back to work today, tomorrow, later this week. Some of you are totally dreading it, right? You just don't like your job. Uh, I love this quote from this English uh, writer, D.W. Gerald. He says, even the ugliest of trades have their moments of pleasure. Now, if I were a grave digger or even a hangman, there are some people I could work for with a great deal of enjoyment. It's a good quote. You know, what if I told you, though, whether you dislike your job or you love your job, the next time you walk into work, you are exactly where you're supposed to be regardless how you feel about it. Because for those 8, 10, 12, maybe 16 hours, maybe longer than that, uh, for, you're there for a specific person that goes beyond what you do at work. Remember your sphere of influence. You have an opportunity to display who Jesus is. You are there in that position to point people to God. And the reality is, like, you're on the front lines. You know, I work at a church with a bunch of whiny Christians. Like, you are out there with real people, right? And uh, I'm just kidding. They're, my staff is, the staff here is great. The, you're out there with people that I don't really get to connect with as long as you do. You know, I might see people at the gym or at the store, but I'm not with them eight hours a day. So you're with people who may be far from God, may, don't, may not go to church at all. You have a much different opportunity because I really only get to talk to those people if they come here, right? But you're going where they are. You're on the front lines. I love, you know, I love how um, this poet, Gerald Manley, talks about work. Um, he talks about work as being beautiful regardless of what you're doing. This is a beautiful poem. He says, to lift up hands in prayer gives God glory. But a man with a dung fork in his hand and a woman with a slop pail give him glory too. Because God is so great that all things give him glory if you mean that they should. 
So how can we be sure to make an eternal impact and give God the glory he deserves in, his work, in, in the workplace? What's interesting is that song we sang right before the message, uh, Revelation song, was, was written by a stay-at-home mom. Her name was Jenny Lee Riddle. And she was literally washing dishes one day and thought to herself, is this all it is? Is this all there is to my life, just being a stay-at-home mom washing dishes, and in that moment, she began to write the words to that song, Revelation Song, which is incredible. There is more to our job than our job. And so we're going to talk about how we give God glory through work by turning to Acts 18. And so we're going to be in Acts 18, just the first three verses, and we're going to jump to Colossians as well, too. So if you want to read along in your Bible or use the YouVersion app, um, we'll also have the text on the screen for you as well. So now, it doesn't look like a lot at first, because it's just three verses, but, there's a, but it's important. So the first, the first verse says this, talking about the Apostle Paul. It says, he left Athens and went to Corinth. All right, uh, here's, here's Corinth on a map. It's about 46 miles west of Athens, and it was the capital of Achaia, which is modern-day Greece. And Corinth was a well-known ancient city, but it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., it eventually was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. So it's a beautiful city, or was, and it's known for its wealth and its luxury, but it also had a bad reputation because of its depravity and immorality, probably like some other cities modern day that you can think of as well. So it, this, therefore, it was strategic that Paul went there to share about the light and love of Christ because it was a dark place. So it says that when he gets there, he, becomes, he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. So we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, two people who would eventually become friends to Paul. Now, they used to live in Italy, but somewhere around 50 AD, Claudius Caesar issues a decree for all Jews to be kicked out of Rome. Uh, R.C. Sproul gives a bit of commentary on this. He says, The decree became, came about because of a disruption and upheaval going on in the city of Rome due to the teaching of one Jewish person named Choristus. And the writing of Roman historian Suetonius is a mention of Jesus. His name is misspelled Choristus, which reflects the pagan pronunciation of the name Christus, the Greek name for Jesus. So, we find out from Suetonius, who's a historian, uh, that what was happening during this time is that Rome was in upheaval. It was in turmoil because of this Jewish man named Jesus whose message was spreading throughout Rome, right? The, the reality of the resurrection had happened. People who saw this and witnesses are traveling through this, this part of the world proclaiming the good news that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and that he came back to life and through him we are offered salvation, right? And this is upending society, so Caesar is threatened by this movement. He kicks out anyone who is associated with Jesus, which back then would have been the Jewish believers. Now, this seems like a horrible thing, right? Imagine if Mayor Light was just like, all right, every Christian in Norwalk, get out. Go to Wakeman. I don't know where, ever. Just, you know, get out of Norwalk. We'd be like, this is terrible, right? This is an awful thing. Well, this is sort of like what it was. It was basically all the Jews, all the Christian Jews in Rome, get out. So they go to Corinth. But... God was in control of this situation because even though Caesar was trying to punish people like Aquila and Priscilla, God uses this for good, leads them to Corinth where they happen to meet Paul and they have a huge impact on the church there and moving forward and helped continue the spread of the good news of Jesus. And in this, it reminds me of 
the words of Joseph in uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, you know, talking to his captors, his family at the time, for what they had done, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And so we, from this, know that we can trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're bringing in here. Maybe it's trouble in your workplace. Maybe it's a failing relationship. Could be a medical diagnosis. Could be a million different things, right? Jesus promises, he said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These troubles should not surprise us, but we should know that when Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, that none of these things are surprising him. That he's still on the throne and he's still in control. One of my favorite verses is Romans 8, 28. It says, therefore we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. He doesn't say, therefore, in some things. No, he says, in all things. So no matter what you're going through, good, bad, neutral, God is working them out for your good and to rest in that promise. So when you go to work and it's rough and it's difficult, just know that God is in that with you. And so going forward, after Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, we read that Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just like he was. Now, when you think of tent maker or tents, you probably think of something like this, but tent makers back then were a little bit different. So um, Pastor Tony Morita, he gives us some context. He says, some of the church fathers rendered the term tent maker as leather worker since tents were often made of leather. This description is likely true in a sense. Others suggest Paul was more of a cloth worker who manufactured tents using goat hair. First of all, I don't like camping. I certainly wouldn't want to camp in a tent made out of goat hair. That just sounds itchy. Regardless of exactly what job, what the job involved, Paul, like other rabbis, knew how to work with his hands, not just with their mind. He was able to do what others have to do. He could make a living in his secular vocation. So Paul was this influential ch- church planner. I mean, literally the most famous missionary of all time, wrote most of the New Testament, changed the course of history, and yet still had a day job, you know, still had a part-time gig. He was, you know, he, we realized he was an ordinary person just like you and me. He had a job. He worked with his hands. He worked with other people. He worked to make money so he could survive. Paul understands what it meant to work, but he also understood what it meant to work for the glory of God. Because I want to jump over to Colossians 3 now. He says this in Colossians 3. He says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's interesting that these are Paul's words. Because the same one that worked as a tent maker, but also spent his life building the church, sharing the good news of Jesus with others, and starting churches said, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And interestingly, this whole chapter in Colossians is focused on what it means to live your life as a new follower of Jesus for people who had just started following Jesus, right? Because it had just been available. How our, and how our faith in Jesus should impact everything about us. Later in this chapter, he speaks directly to slaves and masters in a, in a way that can pretty much sum up the boss-employee relationship. Now, in this text where it says slave, 
uh, obviously there's a lot of negative connotation that goes along with that word because what we typically think of is slavery. But this was not slavery as we think of it. This was similar to indentured servant servanthood, where, where slaves could choose this, and they could also choose to get out of it. And they also earned money. This was not slavery as forced free labor. This was completely different. These slaves were just doing things uh, or were just working to support their family. So I don't want you to think of that slave master um, were those words in that context. Now, some of you might be like, no, my boss, my job really is like slave master, and that's okay too. But here's what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. So again, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything that you do. Paul was addressing people who were just trying to provide for their families, right? These, these were blue-collar workers. They were just clocking in, clocking out. This was not their dream job by, anything, by any means. And he wanted them to understand that what they're doing matters to God because Paul doesn't say, hey, go find your calling. Go do what fulfills you or keep jumping from job to job. No, he's saying whatever work you have, whatever work you're doing, God has called you there for a reason. Have you ever heard the saying, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life? That is baloney, all right? I love my job. This is literally my dream job. When they're like, hey, we need to have a budget meeting, I'm like, yes. No, I'm like, there are times in my job where I'm like, I just don't like this, right? I, do, I would rather be at home with my family. I guarantee you there's professional athletes who are just like, man, I don't want to go play basketball in front of millions of people tonight. I just want to go home and watch the Golden Girls. Like, it's not every day is a dream, right? And, and, because, of the, and because of this, even when it's hard, we should still obey those in leadership above us. And obey is a tough word, right? Because we're Americans. We want freedom. But why does he want them to obey? You know, when you think about it, there are so many people who have a bad attitude towards leadership. Not just, not just leadership like government leadership. I'm talking about your bosses, you know, your employers, your supervisors, your managers. And sometimes that comes out, you know, in words and in actions. And imagine your boss finding out that you have a bad attitude towards his or her leadership and then also finding out you're a Christian. If that happens, please tell them you go to a different church. I'm kidding. You know, how does that reflect who God is? You know what Jesus said about, you know, we want people to know that we're followers of Jesus so we can tell them about Jesus. But, it, but this is what Jesus said in John 13, 35, how Jesus said we would be known. It says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. He doesn't say if you believe correctly, you know, it's not about the music you listen to at your work desk. It's not about having a Christian tattoo or a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. It's, it's not about the chapel sticker on your, car's no, on your car. No, Jesus says that they will know that you are my disciples. You're, they'll know you're a Christian. They'll know you're a Jesus follower by the way you love others in word, in your attitude, in your, in your behaviors, and in your actions. What I love is that it's called the book of Acts and not the book of beliefs. Nobody cares what you believe if it doesn't result in change, right? The book of Acts talked about what the early church did 
in order to move the gospel forward, in order to grow the church. And what they did was they loved other people. You see, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, or you believe yourself to be so, and you disrespect, you cut down, you backstab, you gossip about, or you cheat other people, especially those in leadership, then there's a disconnect between what you think and say you believe and what you actually believe. There's a failure of integrity in your life because our actions and our words reveal what is really true about what we think and believe about Jesus and his lordship or his leadership over our life. What I love, one of my favorite moments in the Gospels is when the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas, doubting Thomas, who hadn't seen him the first time, sees him and he says, my Lord and my God. Now, I don't think Thomas is being redundant there. I think he's saying two things. I think one, he says, you're my God. You know, you're literally alive. I saw you die and now you're back to life. You are God. You said you were God and now you've proved it. And also your Lord, your boss, you're in charge. What you say goes. When we disagree, you're right, I'm wrong, even if I don't like it. Jesus said in John 14 that if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now, what he's not saying is that, hey, in order to love me, obey my commands. He says, you'll know that you'll love me by the, way, by the change it has in your life if you start to obey my commands. What I'm not saying is that we obey God's commands in order to get God to love us, to get Jesus to love us. I'm saying when we, we know we love Jesus when it results in life change, when we start to obey his commands. And what was Jesus' final command before he went to the cross? He says, was to love others as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love those he was talking to? Because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. But the last thing he did before he said that was he washed their feet, which we think is kind of weird, right? But you have to put it in context. I mean, think about this. Imagine going barefoot to the Huron County Fair for a day, all right, walking around all day, and like hitting the pig barn and everything, all right? And then coming home and having somebody wash your feet. Man, that's, that's a very humble job. But Jesus did it for all the disciples, even Judas, who he knew what was gonna happen. Are you willing in humility to love others that way? Because our love for others is a reflection of our love for God or our lack thereof. Whether you like your job or not, the reality is that we are there by God's plan to love those around you even if they don't love you back. And you might say, well, that's easy for you to say. You work at a church. Look, you don't work with Pastor Charles. He's a pain in the neck sometimes. I'm kidding. He's great. But no, I mean, there's not, it's not always great, right? I have worked at very, very difficult jobs before. No matter where you are, God wants to work through you. You know, if you want to win others for Christ, if you want to show people who Jesus is, do it through your words and actions and make sure that your words and actions are the same. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us back there in Colossians 3. He gives us some great guidance how you should work. There's going to be four things. And the first one is integrity. He says, he says, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you, right? That's what integrity is. It's doing what is right, even when no one is watching you, right? Um, like, we're all good employees when our boss is around, right? I've done that before. Your boss, when my boss walks in, I'm a totally different employee, right? Maybe it happens to you. Your boss walks in, you close your browser, get off Instagram, and actually start doing what you're supposed to do. It happens, all right? 
Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. Integrity is the glue that holds your beliefs and your actions together. I love how Pastor John Piper says this. He says, be absolutely and meticulously honest and trustworthy on the job. Be on time. Give a full day's work. More people rob their employees by being slackers than stealing the petty cash. God wants us to be people who work with integrity. And it matters to him because we represent him. So when it comes to work, it matters that we work with integrity. The next one is this, to work with sincerity. Love them, serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Sincerity means to be free from deceit or hypocrisy. And deceit and dishonesty go hand in hand. So being deceitful, dishonest, or hypocritical is the opposite of Jesus' character. So Paul says, serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. Right? And and. And Paul says to the, in here in Colossians to serve them, talking about our bosses or employees, sincerely, with sincerity because of who God is and what God says. Fear of the Lord is just taking God and his word seriously. Or is God more of like a Sunday God to you? Maybe like a small group God, you know, morning devotional God. Um, not a God whose word and authority affect every area of your life, especially your work. Here's the problem with that, because Jesus never gave us the option of him being marginally important in our life. He, Jesus will never be an add-on. He'll never be your co-pilot. He's either pilot or he's out of the car. Here's the dilemma that I see, and this happens with me. I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm with you. We take God's word words as optional when it comes to living them out in certain areas of our life. Might be your relationships, might be your sexuality, might be your money, might be a lot of different things. Maybe it's your work, right? So we take God's, God's words as optional in the, in, in like the area of our work, but this is the same God that we run to when we lose that job. The same God we run to when one of our kids is sick. The same God we run to when a relationship is falling apart. The same God we run to when the medical diagnosis is bad. The same God that we choose when we will obey and disobey and then run to when we are in need. God will never be a servant of our will. Jesus will never be some cosmic genie waiting around until we need something from him. He is either Lord and God or he's not. Now, there's grace, obviously, when we mess that up. But if that is an ongoing pattern in your life, if that's how you see God, it's time to ask yourself some tough questions. Because our lives, and in fact, our work, is a direct reflection of our spiritual condition. You know, if you lack sincerity in the workplace, or maybe at school, or in your relationships, or a lot of different areas, then you most likely lack sincerity with God. Paul goes on to say that we should work willingly. We work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. You know, whatever you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a carpenter, a teacher, a business owner, a sanitation engineer, it doesn't matter. Work willingly, freely, with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord. Be someone that when, that people love to see you come to work, not leave work. Work imagining that Jesus has asked you to do what you're doing that day. You know, Paul wasn't a stranger to work. He knows some roles are hard. He knows some days are long and some jobs are tough, but that doesn't negate that whatever you do, wherever you are, we are called to work willingly for Jesus. And the last one is that we should work expectantly. Paul says, remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. 
and that the master you're serving is Jesus. You know, if you ask someone why they work, the foundational answer is going to be so they can earn a living, right? So they can make money. We have an obligation to do that, to work for an earthly reward. God wants us to, to be able to earn money to take care of ourselves and our families. But our earthly reward should not be your only motivation for work. Maybe you work with people who are, you know they're only in it for the money. Maybe that's you. We can't forget about our eternal reward. And Paul doesn't want us to forget, so he tells us to remember. Remember that there is more than your earthly reward and treasures. Remember that there is an inheritance coming your way. Followers of Jesus, that we get to go to heaven. And we're going somewhere that not everybody is. So my challenge is, let's bring as many of our coworkers with us as we can. And I want you to remember this, that you're serving Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, I want to give you this new mission statement as you enter into work this week. And if you want to take a photo of this so you remember it, Remember this, when you wake up tomorrow or whenever you go back to work and you're getting ready to go in, know this, that you are dispatched by the Holy Spirit on kingdom assignments. Why? To be a light, to be light in a darkened world so that others can see Jesus. Dispatched by the Holy Spirit. Kingdom assignments. So in a darkened world, right? Why? So that others can see Jesus. That's why you are in your job. I went to Chick-fil-A this week. Actually, I went twice this week, but don't tell my doctor because, like, cholesterol and stuff. But uh, we were at the one in um, Sandusky on Wednesday, Pastor Jay. I went to lunch, and there's this older lady that works there. Her name's Carolyn. She's almost 83 years old. And she came over and talked to us, and she was telling us, she said, you know, she's worked all her life, and she's not quite sure why she's at Chick-fil-A, but she knows this, that God has put her there for a reason, and that she has had the opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, to pray with her coworkers, to pray with the customers, I mean, I told this lady, I'm like, ma'am, you are writing my sermon illustration for Sunday. This is incredible, right? She understood that it was more about refilling, it was more than refilling drinks and clearing off tables. Man, she was a light for Jesus in that Chick-fil-A. And so for you, for Paul, for Aquila and Priscilla, it was making tense. What is it for you? Where do you get to go and be a light for Jesus? Your work matters, and where God has placed you in your work matters for this week, for your life. So, so my challenge to you is to work with integrity and sincerity. Work willingly and expectantly, because we know it's not really our bosses, but it's Jesus that we're serving in our work. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your words. God, thank you for work. God, it is a blessing and not a curse. And God, I pray for all of us that when we go forth this week at work, that we would be a light and a darkened world for you. God, that through our words, through our actions, through our behaviors, through our attitudes, that we would be a reflection of your goodness and your love and your grace and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.